Go ahead and take a seat, please. Apparently, I'm going to need to get on this secret email chain that everyone had that said last week, let's not go to church, and this week, let's all make sure it happens. I think we've got about twice as many people this Sunday as we did last Sunday. Uh, we are uh, thankful to have uh, each of you with us. Um, we preach through different uh, scriptures at different points, and uh, we have finished off something in the New Testament. We've been looking at Romans, and so after the New Testament, we're going to the Old Testament. And for those of you who remember, who were here at that time, we had gone through Isaiah chapter 1 through 39. And so we're going to go back to Isaiah and finish up the remainder of uh, Isaiah 40 through 66 in this next sermon series. I was back in December 2015 uh, when Heather Cho was seated uh, in a first-class seat on Korean Airlines, and they're en route from New York to Seoul, South Korea. And she was given by the flight attendant some macadamia nuts. But the macadamia nuts were supposed to be served in a porcelain bowl, but instead they were served in the original plastic packaging. And Heather was not very happy about it. She yelled at and then pushed and then hit the flight attendant. Uh, afterwards, she didn't feel bad about it. She insisted that the pilot turn around so that they would go and they would drop off this flight attendant so they would not have to proceed without her the rest of the way. And you've probably heard a lot of stories about people in the air acting in ways that are inappropriate. And what differentiates this story from others is that Heather Cho was one of the executives at Korean Air and her dad was the CEO of the company. And many people in Korea saw this as a sign of things that were going wrong in their culture. They said this is a prime example of corrupt and entitled behavior of the members of the elite South Korean business families. They described Heather as a princess and a part of the so-called royal family that controls Korean air. And almost as if her dad heard or read none of this, after her release, she was uh, given a year sentence for battery, served four months of that, and as soon as she was released, her dad uh, had her in a position as the president of one of the company's hotel chains shortly thereafter. Heather's behavior illustrates the kind of behavior that I think we encounter in Isaiah chapter 1 through 39. Judah believed that she would always be exempt from whatever she did because she was in a special relationship with God. However, we find that God's way of dealing with entitled children is very different than the CEO of Korean Air. Isaiah's time in these first 39 chapters are packed with descriptions of Isaiah's unfaithfulness. And here's an example of many what Isaiah says of Judah. He says, Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, Children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. Isaiah would recognize a people who are unfaithful to God. In Isaiah chapter 7, when Ahaz was considering what he did as, as these four nations came to attack, Isaiah came and said, trust in God, God will deliver you. And Ahaz essentially says, no thanks, we've got our own plan and our own strategy here. And they forsake God and they make their own alliances with the nations. And yet they think nothing of it. Their eyes are dull, their ears are blocked, and their eyes are shut. See, Judah is living with this sense of false bravado. I mean, why should they reform their ways? 
They were God's special people. They were a part of the royal family of God. Surely God would always protect them. God would always bless them. And they could point at things they did. They continued to offer sacrifices. They continued to keep the Sabbath. They continued to participate in solemn assemblies. And they were sure that God couldn't touch them. In fact, Jeremiah, as he speaks about this problem, Jeremiah warned them. He said, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. People believed between the covenant, between the the temple, they were untouchable. It it was like this, this wall that would separate them from any punishment or any judgment from God. Jeremiah continued saying, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that, you, that have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. They think they're like daughters of the executive, the CEO, who can do whatever they want to do, and dad's gonna always just cover up for all their sins, their failures, and their inadequacies. But Jeremiah has been warning them. Isaiah has been warning them that the covenant relationship expects something different. There are two ways you can look at covenant, and the one is a covenant that creates submission. You recognize the way that God graciously enters into a covenant, the way that God graciously sustains and maintains that covenant, and you want to live in a way that honors him and that submits to him and that pleases him. That's one response you can have to the covenant is submission. The other response is what? You see it as permission to behave however you want to behave, to do whatever you want to do, and to recognize that no matter what you do, God's going to always pick up all the pieces because that's just what God does. And so the people of Judah have believed that God will constantly pick up after them. And so Jeremiah, where we, Isaiah, where we left him, he had offered these words in the 39th chapter. He said, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who were born to you shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Isaiah ended by prophesying a time when the people would be sold into slavery under Babylon. And so it is in the period between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah chapter 40, guess what happens? The very thing that Isaiah had prophesied. It was in uh, uh, 587 BC that the Israelites, that Judah was sold into slavery. They're now living in Babylon, having been taken away from the temple having been taken away from the land, and having feeling really abandoned by God. The psalmist talks about this time in exile in this way. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, so that they're in Babylon under their captivity. There we sat down and there we wept. There's heartbreak because there was punishment that was told. There was punishment that was warned. And they thought it was all just empty words. And now they weep there by the waters of Babylon. And on the willows there we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. 
And our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing to us the songs of Zion. This was Judah who would say, Nobody can hurt us because God's got our back. And they're saying, Oh, sing us that song again. Judah who in her pride would say, Nobody can touch us. Nobody can come near us. We are protected. And now the Babylonians say, Tell us that story yet another time. And the people say, In Babylonian captivity, we can no longer sing these songs of God. Israel is in the midst of a crisis of their faith. And John Steinbeck says that when gods fall, they do not fall a little, they crash and shatter, and it is a tedious job to build them up again. You ever believed in something? Felt confident that it would work? And that falls. It doesn't just fall, it shatters. And how is Judah to rebuild her faith? How is Judah to make sense of the fact that they are the people of God, but living under the slavery of foreign pagan people? And it is to that that Isaiah addresses their concerns. And their concerns and their belief is really twofold. They are in exile, and they think there's got to be one of two reasons why they're in exile. And one option is, maybe God just wasn't strong enough. Maybe we believe that God was powerful. Maybe we believe that God was able to do these things, but oh, we were so naive because God wasn't strong enough. That's one possibility, they think, of why they could be in exile. The second reason is, if God was strong enough, then clearly God just doesn't care enough about us. Because he could have done something, but he chose not to do something. And so many people in the nation of Judah are deciding whether following God makes sense anymore. Well, it makes sense to believe in this God who has disappointed you. And what Isaiah will make clear is that there is a third option. That God did care enough. And the proof of God's care was that he has sent you into exile. Because a God is a God who disciplines those he loves. Think about these words coming from Proverbs. My child, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves the ones he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Judah did not end up in exile because God was not able to save them. They didn't end up in exile because God didn't care about them. God was deeply concerned that his people would be a light to the nations. And in order for them to be a light to the nations, they needed to address some of their behaviors. And God will not stand by when his people believe they are entitled to act and behave in any way they wish. There are these two aspects or ideas of what can happen in the midst of punishment. One is that punishment can be a final judgment. That punishment is for punishment's sake itself. The other notion is that punishment is restorative. You, you discipline in order that someone would become something new. And what we will find is being sold into exile was God's restorative punishment. He wants to invite his people to continue to grow in relationship with him. And so there's some key themes that we'll find in Isaiah 40 through 66. And many of those themes are going to be introduced in the first 11 verses. So that's just what we're going to look at this morning. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. And God reminds them in their time in Babylon, as they are in exile, he reminds them we are still in a covenant relationship. He says that he is 
your God and that they are my people. So they believe that that maybe God broke the covenant and said, I'm done with these people. And Isaiah speaks these words into the future, prophetic words, and says, just remember, when you are there in Babylon, you remember you are still God's people. God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. That all those words that God spoke of you when he first made the covenant are true. God said of them, he said that you shall be my treasured possessions out of all of the people. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. And so God reminds them, you are still my people, even though you're in a setting that you wish you weren't in. The next theme that we will see repeated in these chapters is that judgment is over and forgiveness has been granted. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that she has served her term. Her penalty is paid, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. It becomes very clear that there is a purpose to God's punishment. It's not perpetual punishment. And this is what God has said back in Isaiah 5. This, this is what he wants to have happened. He says that, that, that the people would be bowed down, that everyone will be brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are humbled. That's what happened when they went into exile. The people were indeed humbled. They were indeed aware of their wrongdoing. What we don't find out yet is how exactly their sins have been forgiven. Isaiah will later tell us how right now. He just wants us to know the sins have been forgiven. And as we go on through these chapters, we'll find out exactly the way in which God forgives their sin. But the other theme that we will find in these chapters is that we need to be prepared because God is coming. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, and he says there are two kinds of future. The first he calls futurum. It's the, it's the history that we make happen. Somebody does action A, which leads to action B, which leads to action C, and we get here simply because we can see all of the pathway of human decisions that have been left here. But the second kind is what he calls Adventus which is the history that God makes happen. We do A, we do B, and then God comes and does something unexpected. God interrupts what's happening in human history. And what Isaiah is prophesying here is of that time when God will come and intervene in human history. The outcome will not be the sum of human behaviors, but simply it will be the sum of God's decision to come to his people. Now, if you're paying close attention, you might see these words of a voice crying out in the wilderness. That might make you think of Matthew chapter 3. And you'll realize that that passage was fulfilled there. And so I want to just briefly remind us about something in the nature of Old Testament prophecy because we're getting back into this. And I don't expect you to remember something we talked about months and months ago. Christopher Wright says there are three horizons when it comes to Old Testament prophecy. And the first horizon is a fulfillment that is in the day and the time of the prophet or in his audience. 
So the prophet, it's like a, it's when you've, if you've ever hiked up a mountain and you say, there's the top of the mountain, the peak, and you get to that peak and you realize, oh, there's another peak beyond it. And you get to that peak and you realize there's another peak beyond it. These horizons are the realizations that when Isaiah spoke that there was a time. So now when he speaks about the coming of God, what he's speaking specifically about is that God is going to come and he's going to deliver the people out of Babylon. He's going to bring them out of exile. And so the people are to be prepared for God's coming. But there is a second horizon in the prophets, and that is something that is to be fulfilled in a future time in human history. That's what we find Matthew referring to. It has already been fulfilled, and God did come and deliver his people, but there is more, a deeper fulfilling to happen. And so when Christ comes, Christ comes also to do what? To deliver his people. To deliver them from, from what? From exile. And so on this second horizon, we see that it's fulfilled. But there's also a third horizon in which things are fulfilled beyond the time and space of human history. Are we not still waiting for God's coming? For God to bring us in exile from into the original creation that he had desired and intended? So in some aspects, this is fulfilled in Isaiah's time. In some aspects, it is fulfilled in the New Testament. And in some aspects, we are still waiting for it to be fulfilled in the future. God is a God who fulfills his promises. And then later he says, oh, and by the way, you thought that was everything. Here is more. And in light of that, we should be reminded of this theme that we see. Is that nothing can halt or hinder God's promises. Isaiah will say, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower in the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord falls upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. You can just look out the window and you can see what happens when grass doesn't get what it needs. In fact, in that time, all it took was a couple of dry days and a pretty hot wind and all the grass would turn brown, it would die. And God is saying people in the presence of God are like that just a moment they will turn to brown they'll be like the grass they'll be like the flowers and so you recognize if if this grass were to try and stand up against the creator of the world what's the likelihood it's going to succeed israel needs to remember she is but grass but she also needs to remember all the other nations are but grass that nothing will stand in the way of a god who makes promises his word that is spoken will always be fulfilled and this next theme that we will see play out in these last several chapters is that when God comes, you will see his might and his compassion. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. That language you'll find in the New Testament often spoken of as good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother's sheep. God's going to show up with a strong and mighty arm against his enemies. 
but he's also going to show up like a tender mother for his people. I want to leave you with this thought as we think about Isaiah 39, as we think about 40 through 46, is that we need to be able to get a full picture and a full grasp of God's true nature. And God's true nature includes both of these elements, doesn't it? God's mighty judgment and God's merciful compassion. It seems to me that many people today think they have to make a choice between one or the other. Have you ever heard Christian teachers where the only things it seems that they know to say of God is about his judgment, about his wrath, about his punishment? And it seems like the, the only state that they want a person is in is, is a state where they're constantly looking over their shoulders. They're constantly cowering fear. They're constantly wondering. And there are some Christian teachers who love to teach the message of judgment and know nothing of the tenderness and the compassion of God. But isn't it true that the opposite also exists? That there are some Christian teachers who will only ever speak of the mercy and the compassion of God? That God is a God who will continually forgive you no matter what you do. That God is a God who will continually make exceptions and allowances for your behavior. That you can turn against God, but don't worry about it because God's still got your back. And which is the true picture of God? It's a combination of both of these aspects and both of these elements. Isaiah 1 through 39 is the story of God's judgment. Isaiah 40 through 66 is the story of God's compassion. He comes with both. And if we are to be a people who are to follow this God, I think there's two things that are going to be necessary for us. We're going to have to know the heart of God and know the situation of others. I think there are two kind of corollary mistakes that we can all make as Christians. And the one mistake would be to comfort people who need to be warned. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for somebody who's not in a right relationship with God, somebody who's living in rebellion with God, for us to say, don't worry, comfort, just relax, you're good. That would be a terrible message to share with someone who needs to be realizing that God is a God who punishes those who are disobedient. But wouldn't it also be a terrible tragedy for somebody who God says, you need to comfort this person. You need to show them compassion and kindness. And you go into a situation like that and all you know to do is to beat them up over and over again. And the only way that we'll be able to live like God calls us to live in response to this is to know the heart of God and to know the situation of man. One of the most dangerous things for me as a preacher is to presume that I know which message you need this morning. So we're going to trust the message to the Holy Spirit. And the message is this. If you are living in rebellion to God, and you believe in a, in a God who will allow you to live however you wish to live, who, who you think you can live with royal entitlement, you, you can continue to dishonor and disobey God, and you think that's okay with God, then the message you need to hear is that God punishes those who rebel against him. And that he wants you to come back to him. But maybe you are currently living in relationship to God. 
and you are hurting and you are worried and you are concerned. Am I going to do it? Am I going to be able to make it? Does God still love me? Does God still care for me? And you're in a covenant relationship with God, then the message is you need to be comforted by the shepherd who picks you up and carries you in his own bosom that God will carry you to where you need. And the Spirit himself knows the message you need to hear this morning. May we be a people who speak truth, speak words of warning when words of warning need to be spoken, but also may we be a people who speak words of comfort when words of comfort are to be spoken. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. As we go from here, let us remember that we will go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will go with the love of God, and we will go with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you have any kind of a need, if you are not sure where you stand in relationship to God, I invite you to come to the back. Uh, I'll be back there. Some of our elders will be back there. Happy to talk with you. Happy to pray with you. But if you are in any way disconcerted by the words of this message, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.